Hello and welcome back to the UFO and Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Rick Black. Well, it's December and we are in the middle of the holiday season. I hope everyone is doing well. I know I've been super busy. Today, I'm going to talk about another alien abduction case. We're going to go back to August of 1976. On Friday night, August 20th, 1976, four young art students in their early 20s left Boston, Massachusetts for a canoe and camping trip in a wilderness area of northern Maine along the Allagash River. The group consisted of identical twins Jack and Jim Weiner, Charlie Foltz, and Chuck Rack. Upon arriving at a staging point, they hired a pontoon airplane, which flew them and their canoes to Telos Lake on the Allagash Waterway. During the next several days, they canoed and camped along the waterway. And I don't know about you, but this sounds super fun. Does anybody still do this kind of thing? I know my wife and I like to go camping, but it's more like pull the camper into a campground full of amenities, not off-the-grid adventure like this. Anyway, moving on. On the evening of Thursday, August 26th, they reached Eagle Lake, set up camp, and decided to go night fishing for trout. Because it was so dark, pitch black in fact, they had to build a huge bonfire to mark their campsite so that they could find their way back to it. Shortly after they dropped their lines in the water, Chuck became aware of a feeling of being watched. He described it like this. I turned toward the direction from where I felt this, and I saw a large, bright sphere of colored light hovering motionless and soundless, about 200 to 300 feet above the southeastern rim of the cove. Chuck yelled for the others to look behind them. There, rising above the trees, was a huge oval glowing object. As their eyes became adapted to its intense brightness, now I'm going to read to you directly from the report. A gyroscopic motion was noted, as if there were pathways of energy flowing equatorially and longitudinally from pole to pole. This divided the sphere into four oscillating quadrants of bright colored light. The color changes were very liquid and enveloping, as if the entire object had a plasmatic motion to it, like a thick sauce does as it starts a rolling boil. Charlie grabbed a flashlight and blinked it at the object. Instantly, the huge, rising, glowing object came to an abrupt halt and began to slowly approach the canoe. Simultaneously, a tube-shaped beam of light erupted from the object and hit the water. A glowing ring with a dark center reflected on the water's surface, indicating that the beam was hollow. The object and its beam of light began moving toward the canoe. Terrified, the campers began paddling frantically toward their bonfire and camp as the beam swept across a lake directly at them and engulfed them. It was from this point on that the conscious memories of the four differed according to each witness's vantage point. The next thing Charlie remembered was paddling for shore and standing at the campsite with the others watching the object move away. Chuck Rack remembers staying in the canoe while the others had piled out in panic onto the shore. Transfixed, still holding his idle paddle, he could not take his eyes off the object. Jack and Jim were able to consciously remember a bit more. Jack said that, quote, It was just behind us, and I could see that we were never going to outrun the beam. 
It was advancing too fast, and I remember thinking, holy cow, this is it. We'll never get away. The next thing I knew, we were on the shore getting out of the canoe, looking directly at the object, which was now about 20 or 30 feet above the water. The beam was coming out of the bottom of it, like the object was sitting on the beam. It hovered there, right in front of us, completely silent for what seemed like four or five minutes. Suddenly, the beam was pointing up towards the sky. The object began to move up and away from us towards the southwestern sky, and then shot into the stars and was gone in just a second. Jim Weiner said that, quote, There was no mistake that it was coming directly to us. Then I remember standing on the lake shore watching the object hovering above the lake, 50 to 75 yards in front of us. Then the search beam went upward into the sky and we saw it moving away at a tremendous speed. We all seemed to be in a state of shock. We just stood there, unable to move or talk. End quote. When the strange anesthetizing effect wore off, Chuck got out of the canoe and joined the others as they trudged dreamily up the beach to their camp. Even in this state, They were dumbfounded when they realized what had happened to the huge bonfire that had been blazing several minutes ago. When we left to go fishing, said Jim, we set very large logs on the fire to burn for a good two to three hours. The entire experience seemed to last at most 15 or 20 minutes, yet the fire was completely burned down to red coals. At the time... They had no memory of what happened during the time it took for their huge bonfire to burn down. This would remain a puzzle for them for years. And this was the end of their encounter. The four young men saw something extraordinary. They were puzzled about the fire, but at the time, they weren't aware of the phenomenon of missing time. A few years later, Jim suffered a head injury which caused temporal limbic epilepsy. During treatment, Jim's doctor asked him to report any unusual experiences that might be symptomatic of his condition. Jim described strange things that he and his friends had experienced since the UFO encounter. These included waking at night to see a strange creature, or strange creatures, levitation from bed, and temporary paralysis. He also described their encounter with the UFO in the period of missing time. Jim's doctors advised him to contact a UFO researcher as they felt that Jim and his friends may have been involved in a UFO abduction experience. In January of 1989, a formal investigation was lost with a MUFON investigator and a CE34 specialist, David Webb, solar physicist and MUFON consultant Anthony Tony Constantino, professional hypnotist. It was conducted in a careful and meticulous manner over a period of two years. It was obvious to the investigators that the period of missing time had to be sandwiched between sighting the object and reaching the shore. The beam of light hitting the canoe seemed to be the dividing point between memory and amnesia. During the first of a long series of hypnotic sessions, it was decided to concentrate on this segment of the terrifying encounter. Under hypnosis, All four witnesses relived detailed and traumatic UFO abduction experiences during the period of missing time. All were transferred from their canoe to the UFO by a hollow, tube-like beam of light. 
On board, they encountered strange humanoid creatures that exerted some kind of mind control over them so that they could not resist their demands. All were made to undress and sit on a plastic-like bench in an area illuminated by a diffuse white light. After looking at their eyes and in their mouths with a pencil-sized rod with a light on its tip, the aliens placed them in a harness and flexed their arms and legs. Then, one by one, they were made to lie on a table where each was examined by a number of strange, handheld, and larger machine-like instruments that were lowered over their bodies. During this segment of the examination, the alien entities removed samples of saliva, skin scrapings, blood, feces, urine, and sperm from each of the abductees. After the examinations, the abductees were made to dress and enter another room which had a round portal in one of its walls. They were lined up and made to walk into the portal. Strange sensations surged through their bodies as they found themselves floating down the hollow beam of light into their canoe, which was now in shallow water near their campsite. The tube-like seemed to hold the canoe steady as each was placed in it in the same seating positions they were in prior to the abduction. As the hypnosis sessions continued, much detail was recovered about their onboard experience. Also, it was discovered that the twins had had bedtime visitations by alien creatures and abduction experiences since early childhood. These experiences were relived in vivid detail under hypnosis. During the course of the investigation, an extraordinary event occurred. Jack and his wife Mary were abducted from their remote mountain home in Townshend, Vermont. During the night of May 20, 1988, Jack's dog woke him up when he scratched at the door wanting to go out to relieve itself. When Jack got up to put him out, he was shocked to see a blue light shining through the kitchen window. He went out to look and saw a glowing object hovering over the field adjoining his house. He decided to bring the dog back in. In the morning, he thought he had dreamed about the whole thing. However, under hypnosis, he relived a shared abduction experience with his wife in minute detail. Mary only remembered dreaming about deer with big eyes coming to their bedside. She did not respond to hypnosis. The following is an excerpt from Jack's hypnosis sessions. It's blue, a blue light. And I think, that's funny. That's not the moon. And then I go to the window and I look out the window and what I see is amazing. I see a big bright light and it's right over the truck in the field outside the house. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't believe that. And so I say, Mary, get up, get up and look. And I run to the door and I go out the door and I'm running towards the light up in the field. And then I see the dog running alongside me. And so I pick him up and I run back to the house. The light is still there and it's moving. And I put the dog back in bed and I'm thinking, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this now. I don't want to look at the light. So I'm going back to bed and I'm thinking, I don't want to deal with this now. Why are they here now? And I'm scared. And so I pull the covers over my head and Mary's next to me. And then I know, I know that something's in the house. I just know that they're there and I'm under the covers and I think, oh God, oh God, why are they here now? I don't want this to happen. And then the covers move, and I feel something on the cover. 
and then the covers are down, and I'm looking there, and I was right. They're right there. Oh, God, they're right there, right next to my bed. It has big eyes and a big head, and it's dark, and there's light behind it coming through the door, and it's just taking the covers away, and I don't want to look at it. And I look at Mary. There's another one there, and it's next to Mary. And I wish that I could do something, but I can't. I have to do what they want. And the light is out there, and they want me to go out there. They're lifting me. Mary's standing, and they're making us move towards the light. And the dog isn't doing anything. We're through the door. We walk up the lawn, and I feel like I'm floating. Our feet are on the ground, but my feet are not doing what I want them to do. Jack and Mary were brought to stand in front of a huge, house-sized glowing object sitting on a blue light that enveloped its underside. The glow around the object itself was changing colors from white to yellow to orange and purple and back to white. No noise emanated from the object, but the air was filled with the acrid smell of ozone. Then Jack and Mary were made to walk into the blue light under the object. Instantaneously, they were transferred inside of the glowing object. Mary was separated from Jack, who was made to undergo examination similar to the one that he and his friends had experienced 12 years earlier. After the examination, Mary rejoined Jack, and they were literally floated across the lawn from the craft to their house, through the unopened front door, and to their bedroom, where they went back to bed in a strange, lethargic state of mind. This experience left physical evidence behind in the form of burns on the bottom of Jack's feet. Jack also received a biopsy-like scoop mark above his ankle during another abduction. The scoop mark was located just above a scar left behind during an operation for an anomalous lump that had appeared overnight on Jack's leg several years prior. Jack's local doctor thought it was a cyst but was unable to drain it, so referred Jack to a surgeon who removed it. Jack was told that the local pathologist did not know what it was and that it had been sent to the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, for further analysis. However, when they checked Jack's medical records, they found that it was sent to military pathologists in Washington, D.C., where it was examined by a United States Air Force colonel. Attempts for further information about the anomalous lump were thwarted as the surgeon would not cooperate with the inquiry. During the course of the investigation, they conducted witness background checks, examined medical records and diaries, cross-checked witness testimony, coordinated witness psychological profile tests, correlated witness accounts with other reports, and conducted 15 hypnosis sessions over a period of 14 months. The final 10-volume report numbered over 700 pages. It was made available to UFO researchers and became the basis of a book on UFO abductions to be published by Time Life and several TV documentaries. In summation, this UFO abduction case is unique in a number of ways. It involved four credible persons who all consciously shared the same close encounter with a UFO in 1976 during a canoe trip along the Allagash Waterway in northern Maine. All percipients experienced missing time and relived traumatic complementary UFO abduction experiences under hypnosis. 
Two of the abductees are identical twins, which was of great interest to their alien abductors. The investigation revealed that each of the witnesses exhibited the typical benchmark characteristics of other abductees. Lastly, all of the witnesses are artists who were able to provide detailed sketches of different aspects of their experiences. This has provided the UFO research community some excellent impressions relating to the appearance of alien beings, their instruments, and their craft. The many-faceted and intriguing elements of the Allagash abductions also provided a catalyst for a detailed correlation of the witnesses' experiences with benchmarks exhibited in other abduction reports being investigated and studied. Such were derived from an exhaustive survey of 270 reported UFO abductions in the United States and abroad compiled by Dr. Thomas E. Bullard of the University of Indiana. Some major similarities noted were alien interest in the reproduction system and the extraction of sperm from each of the witnesses, a series of UFO and related paranormal experiences that dated back to early childhood, physical marks on the percipients, bodies typical of those on the bodies of other UFO abductees, and the overnight appearance of a lump above the tibia of one of the twins. In addition, all witnesses were subjected to detailed interrogations, rigorous character reference checks, 12 recorded transcribed hypnotic regression sessions, and a battery of psychological profile tests. They also examined a number of alternate theories advanced to explain UFO abductions, hoaxes, fantasy-prone personalities, psychosis, birth trauma memories, and archetypal images from a collective unconscious. The investigation concluded that the moral character of the witnesses, the graphic reliving of their experiences under hypnosis, and the extraordinary correlations between their experience and that of others provided overwhelming evidence that their experiences were objective in nature. If you've been listening to me for any length of time, you know how I feel about regressive hypnosis. It is far too easy to suggest or direct the subject to, quote, remember events that simply did not happen. We're dealing with the human mind. This is such a complicated subject that it is hard for me to believe anything revealed by regressive hypnotic therapy. It is interesting, though, that the young men remembered events that are eerily similar to other accounts of alien abduction. Another little tidbit of interesting information came out in 2016 when one of the men came forward and admitted that none of this actually happened. This is where I need to put in the record scratch. Chuck Rat came forward and said that they did witness strange lights. They reported it to a forest ranger and were told that the colored lights they saw were from a hardware store grand opening. They had a huge spotlight in the back of a pickup that was beaming lights into the sky with colors changing from white to red to green and so forth. So, what would they have to gain by fabricating this story? Well, they've had multiple conference appearances. They were all on the Joan Rivers show. They appeared in comic books, online interviews, and they were also promoting a book on their encounter authored by Raymond Fowler. Jack and Jim had a website called the AllagashUFOTwins.com where they sold artwork related to the incident. I looked for the website. I found evidence that it did exist, but it looks like it's no longer live. 
I mentioned that Chuck Rack came forward. He actually fell away from the group and in 2016 came forward and said, the reason I supported the story at first was because I wanted to make money. Chuck said that the hypnosis sessions that he went through didn't give him any of the memories that the others were claiming, even though he initially said that they did. He said, we were compelled to stay together, speculating that this could go into the millions of dollars for each of us. We made very little, and I wouldn't call it a hoax, just brilliant storytelling. It's not the truth, but I have to admire the storytelling ability of these guys. Well, Chuck, I would call it a hoax. He also discounts the mystery of the campfire, saying that the largest of the logs was only three and a half inches in diameter and would have burned off quickly. Foltz contradicts that statement, saying, Some of the wood we put on there was the diameter of my leg. I would say a good 10 inches in diameter easily. Chuck Rack also states that some recreational drugs were in use. He said, quote, I remember being on the Joan Rivers show and Joan asking, were you guys drinking or taking drugs? Fortunately, I was sitting furthest away from her and Wiener was right next to her and he had to field that question and lie. And I didn't have to lie. Yeah, we were definitely stoned when we went out on a lake just before we got that sighting. End quote. Charlie Foltz claimed that Chuck Rack had been banned from some UFO conventions and calls him a loose cannon in a mental disaster area. And he denies the drug use and claims they only had an eight-pack of beer with him. Jim Weiner suggests that Chuck is hurt by losing his friends and lashing out at them. Ray Fowler concurs that Rack didn't have the same memories come out in regressive hypnosis. He's the type of person who needs to be in control, and he was not happy with not having detailed recall of the abduction portion of the incident. And several years after the investigation, he claimed that no one was abducted. Chuck Rack states that he feels free now that he's told the truth, but doesn't discount the possibility of life out there. He said, quote, I'm completely open-minded about it. I just don't think it happened in our case. End quote. So, what do you think? Do you believe Chuck? Or the other three? You can probably guess where I'm leaning, but you could decide for yourself. I was just telling someone that I'm more skeptical now than when I first started this podcast. It seems that most of the cases are simply not true. I can't debunk all of them, but it doesn't look good for most of them. I'm trying to go into each case with an open mind. Remember, believe none of what you hear and half of what you read. If you like the show, I would like to encourage you to help support the show. You can help me out with just $3 a month. Just go to the website and click on support. I would really appreciate the help and would be happy to give you a shout out. Do you have a UFO story that you'd like to share? Is there a UFO story that you'd like for me to look into? Just send me an email at ufoandalienpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Rick Black, and I'll talk to you next time.